You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Welcome back to all of our participants here for the Sunday of the Fathers of the First Council of Nicaea, which is celebrated on the Sunday between Ascension Thursday and the Feast of Pentecost one week from this Sunday. The texts that we have that, that are given to us by the church are, are John chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. That's John 17, 1 through 13. And Acts of the Apostles chapter 20, beginning with verse 16 through 18, and then 28 through 36. So basically, chapter 20 of Acts of the Apostles with this theme of the unity of God, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that reflected now in the image and likeness of God, now restored in us and in the church, and therefore this theme of the unity of the church and what that means and what that doesn't mean. So we're going to just jump in here and uh, take a look at the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 17, beginning with verse 1 through 13. At that time, Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, even as you have given him power over all flesh, in order that, that to all you have given him he may give everlasting life. Now this is everlasting life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on earth, and I have accomplished the work you have given to me to do. And now do you, Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory that I, have, that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the men you have given out of the world. They were yours, and you have given them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have learned that whatever you have given me is from you. Because the words that you have given me, I have given to them. And they have received them and have known as a fact that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you did send me. I pray for them, not for the world do I pray, but for those whom you have given me. Because they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep in your name those you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those you have given me I guarded, and not one of them perished except the son of perdition, in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world in order that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Father, remind us where this text uh, comes from here in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. Give us that context that we're usually seeking here at the beginning of our study together. 
Sure. So the this discourse here is sometimes referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Uh, he's asking for the Father to take care of the disciples, of course, in all sorts of wonderful ways. It occurs at the as part of the the Last Supper in John's Gospel. So John's passion narrative, his passion, death, and resurrection takes up half of the gospel. The synoptic gospels, it's, it's just at the tail end. But in John, halfway into his, the gospel, he starts the passion narrative. He starts talking about the Passover coming and all this in chapter 13. So here in chapter 17, we are hearing the tail end of a very long monologue, for the most part, of Jesus in the context of the Last Supper, which started way back in chapter 13. And so he is in the upper room talking to them at the end of the Last Supper, and then they're going to make their journey from the upper room to the Mount of Olives. Probably, as many commentators suggest, dropping down through the Essene Gate into the Valley of Gehenna and then going up the Kidron to uh, the Mount of Olives, which is where it picks up in chapter 18, verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples, assuming that is out of the upper room, across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. And then all of a sudden we begin the, the, um, uh, the arrest and all of that. You know, this text is, I think, at first glance, a, a confusing one. It's a challenging text, especially when it's read in its full context. And uh, as we do as the, the first of the Gospels of uh, the 12 Gospels during Great Week, in preparation for Pascha, it's a, as you said, it's a monologue or or a very just very long, long prayer, and it's it's almost uh, broken up slightly by Jesus saying, "It's time for us to go," and they they seem to get up from the mystical supper, and he begins speaking again. And I've oftentimes you know considered this this text that it, it appears as though it's. It's like Jesus' last words to his best friends. And he doesn't want to let this moment, he's savoring the moment and sharing with them his heart. And I think the text is best approached in that way to allow Jesus to speak to us uh, in this beautiful prayer, uh, in this beautiful uh, word that he's giving about the unity that he has with the Father and the prayer that we will then be transformed by our communion with him. And that communion with him is given to us in two term, two ways. It's, it says here that uh, now this is everlasting life, that they may know you, the only true God. And some, I think, may read that and, and think that that's a, a rather maybe almost a superficial way that we might come to, to attain eternal life. You know, that if we come to know him, like I get smart in theology and know a bunch of stuff about God, but this is not the kind of knowledge that John is talking about. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, Father, maybe you can help us a little bit here in the context. There's a number of items in here, I think, that in the context of the Gospel of John make a lot of sense. But outside of that context, they sound strange. Uh, Jesus says, not for the world do I pray. And I think outside of the context of the Gospel of John, that phrase might sound strange. You know, why doesn't Jesus pray for the world? Of course, knowledge is, according to the ancient philosophers, knowledge is the union of 
the 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 knower, the one the one who comes to know, and the thing they know. And John is certainly picking up on on, on this idea of u- of unity of union uh, by using this biblical idea of knowledge. I just want to ask you that question about this theme, this idea of knowledge in Scripture, as John incorporates it into his gospel has a sense of a broader context, doesn't it, than simple intellectual kind of achievement, which we might, is the way we might read in a modern American society. Sure. The uh, example of this all the way back in the Old Testament, where uh, in, in the law, here you have you know, this intellectual information in a certain sense that they're supposed to know, but it, they're also told not only should they be uh, obedient to that, knowing it, but also that is, you know, outward circumcision. But even Moses says back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, this is way back in Deuteronomy, Moses says to them, circumcise your hearts, O Israel. And, uh, and other examples, like Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, uh, he talks to them about the law of God, and that they, they must know it, but they also must live by it. He says, when you stand up, when you sit down, when you walk by the way, when you lay in your house, when you're out in the field, uh, this is, you must live your entire life, your whole existence must be lived in accordance with this knowledge, this information that's been revealed. And, and Paul will say um, in Romans chapter 2, he says, it is not the hearers of the law, of the Torah, who are justified, but the doers of the Torah. So simply having knowledge of what God has revealed is not enough. The purpose of the revelation of what God has said is intended to make you or cause you to walk in his ways, that is, come into relationship with him. You know, it's, it, it seems that, that uh, what you're saying there about this unity of our kind of, say, intellectual faculties or whatever with with our real life making it incarnate in our life is uh is true as, uh, using that same word regarding marriage isn't it that there's that that a real marriage takes place in the union as we talk about carnal knowledge or adam knew his wife and things like that that uh that this union which takes place between a husband and spouse which creates this unity the two become one flesh is something not just because I say I do or because, but there's a real unity of life, a shared life, a uh, communion of love, which is what Jesus is praying for really here for us, that we might be incorporated into the love of the Holy Trinity in our life. And that becomes incarnate in our life. And he says here, and they, they have received them and have known as a fact that I came forth from you and they have believed that you did send me. And that, that, that aspect of faith or belief is the same reality, right? The laying down of our life to the one in whom we believe, we entrust our life. And there becomes a sharing so that what, what the other is becomes mine. This total unity of the two, which is really what Jesus is praying for. And I think what, what the church is calling us to open our, our, our life to, you know, over the last few weeks, we've been, as we continue today, we, we've been looking in the, in our, lectionary at the life of the early church in Acts of the Apostles. And it's there that the church places before us the example of what the church is and asks us to reflect upon have, have we lived up to that reality, that, that truth. And that truth is 
the incarnation of, of God himself in our midst in the communion of, uh, of, of the saints or the communion of the church. And this theme really is continued in this, in this, this, uh, the prayer that, or the, the lack of prayer, if you will, that Jesus says this really a, a difficult line here, not for the world do I pray, but for those whom you have given me. And we have to understand this in the context of the gospel of John. Jesus has just gone about the entire gospel, revealing himself, revealing himself, revealing himself, healing, healing, healing. And yet the, the world, as John understands it in his gospel, the, the, those who do not receive him, who do not know him, and therefore have no unity with him, have rejected him. So Jesus has done everything to share himself with those who he comes to, but, but he will never force himself upon us. And unfortunately, the world in many ways represents those who have now turned their back, have made a decisive a decision against him. And again, how important this is understanding this in the context that you were just talking about. Jesus is about to be arrested. And all those who have been watching him this whole time, the healing of the blind man, the, the, uh, you know, uh, the healing of the paralytic, the walking on water, the, all of these things, the raising of the dead, they've seen it all. But they've become blind, and they have, they have rejected him, and therefore, the, the, he, he, he will not force himself upon them. And this is it's a warning to all of us and an invitation to all of us to open our hearts this, this Sunday to this gift of God's life and his revelation to us that we might fulfill his prayer, that we become one with him. And then, of course, Father, this theme now of Jesus saying, I am coming to you uh, in the context of our lectionary cycle, if you could just comment on that. Well, I, I think it's pretty clear, I hope, for our audience that this, this is the Sunday, this is the Sunday following the Feast of Ascension. And so what the lectionary shows us here is that Jesus' ascent to the Father had already been uh, revealed in a certain sense be before it actually happens. He's already preparing, like you said, his friends for what is about to take place. And what is about to take place is not end at the cross. It, it doesn't end at the resurrection. It comes to a, a close in a certain sense with his ascension. But even that, as we all know, will finally be uh, resolved in his descent again at the end of time. And so what we're seeing here then in this gospel is, in the lecture I'm picking this, this reading for us, is that Jesus has been preparing his disciples for what is to come. And that is the, the, the eventual uh, the initial sight of him in his body ascending back to the Father. Of course, the great mystery of the ascension is, is, no, is no great. You know, we pray this prayer at the, at the altar, or the, or the deacon uh, does, if, if we have a deacon serving with us, as he circles the altar in preparation for the divine liturgy, being God, you are present in the tomb by your body, and yet in Hades by your soul, in paradise with a thief, and on the throne of Christ God with the Father and the Holy Spirit, filling all things and encompassed by none. And it's, it's such a beautiful prayer because, it, because the great mystery of the ascension isn't, <laughs> isn't, there's no mystery in the fact that the, that the, that the, 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 the eternal Son of God is found in the presence of the Father, whose presence he was never severed from, 
with the incarnation. This is a, this is, this is false. This is a heresy. The idea that somehow the son was separated from the father was alienated from the father. No, the great mystery of the ascension is that he takes our human nature now back to where he had planned for it to be in the beginning. That is in communion with him, the father and the Holy spirit in this life of the Holy Trinity. And therefore can do uh, what we were made to do it, namely to give the gift of God's life to those we encounter. The Feast of the Ascension then and the Feast of Pentecost are intimately, intimately connected because it is in the Feast of the Ascension that our human nature is lifted up and, and returned to our proper place by which we might do what we were made to do, and that is to be uh, lovers in the image and likeness of he who is love. And love is, of course, the giving of our life. The Feast of Ascension, the Feast of Pentecost, is the great feast of, of the transformation of our humanity back to it, its original purpose. Let's look here at Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20, verse 16 through 18, and verse 28 through 36. And again, of course, we're here on the Sunday in which we commemorate the fathers of the First Council at Nicaea, who fulfill, in many ways, this prayer of Christ in John chapter 17 that we just spent time uh, looking at. In those days, Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so as not to waste time in Asia, for he was hurrying as much as he could in order to reach Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, however, he had sent an invitation to Ephesus for the presbyters of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, Be careful about yourselves and the whole flock over which the Holy Spirit has placed you as bishops to, to herd the church of God, which he has redeemed through his own blood. For I know this, that after I am gone, fierce wolves will get in among you and will not spare the flock. And from among you, some men will arise speaking perverse doctrines to draw away the disciples after them. Watch, therefore, and remember that for three years, night and day, I did not cease to warn with tears every one of you. And now, brethren, I commend, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, who is able to edify and to grant you an inheritance among all his blessed ones. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know these hands of mine have provided for my needs and those of my companions. In all things I have shown you that by working in this way, you should help the weak. And remember that the Lord Jesus said in person, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And after saying this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. Uh, Father, there's much to, to, to speak about here in this text um, and to clarify for those that are participating, but maybe you could just help us in the context here, Acts chapter 20, especially its relationship to Acts chapter 15, which we've looked at as that kind of center point of Acts of the Apostles, which is the first council of the church in Jerusalem. Now we're celebrating this Sunday, remembering the first council of Nicaea, uh, somewhat 275 years or so later. Give us that context here, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20. All right, so in Acts chapter 20 here, we're, we're hearing about the return of Paul 
on his third journey. And it might be helpful if we, if we pull up the map there. Sure. We can see this region. Paul made three missionary journeys. There's actually some more, depending on how you want to look at them, his trip imprisonment and things like that. But for now, just the context of the first three is important for us. He's been evangelizing this whole area. We can see their Antioch, where he begins his journey, his first journey. He, on his first journey, he had traveled through Cyprus, that little island right there, and gone up into Asia Minor to Antioch, Pisidia, Lystra, Derbe, um, over in Turkey there. But the, that was his first journey. On his second journey, he passed through that region again. And then now on his third journey, which is what we're looking at here, he goes from Antioch, passes through that same region from, from, you know, from Lystra, Derbe, all that, all the way uh, to Ephesus, makes his way into Macedonia, down to Corinth, Nicaea there. And then he eventually returns, and he goes back by boat to, on his way back, he goes to Miletus, which is where the story picks up here on his return. He calls for the bishops from Ephesus. Ephesus originally was a port city, but the bay of Ephesus had filled with so much sediment from the river that Ephesus you know, today is now an inland city. And so even in Paul's time, there was a, a little bit of a distance there. So he goes to Miletus. He doesn't have time by foot to go all the way to Ephesus. And so instead he calls the bishops from Ephesus to him in Miletus and then gives them this very stern warning that, as you said, is so uh, beautifully reflects a lot of what we see in the Council of Nicaea and what happens there. And also in many ways is an echo of what Christ said and, and prayed for his disciples in John 17. You know how it's, it's very important just to remember a little context here. I'll pull the map down of what's going on in the church at the time. And that is that the, the, uh, the apostles are going out now and engaging the world and not in the world in the sense of John's world, but in, in some sense, yes, those that did not know the Lord in many places, not of no fault of their own. These were, these were pagans, Greeks and Romans and so forth, who, who had not come to know Yahweh, or they knew of maybe the synagogue in the town and uh, may, maybe had heard some things, but nevertheless, these were pagans. The church is engaging for the first time and struggling with this engagement, struggling with keeping these people faithful, because every time Paul would land in a city and he would leave, then of course, all of the pressures of society would come back. Imagine yourself as, you know, um, a member of the church of, uh, of Corinth, but a, a, a Greek and a former pagan. All of your friends, all of your, you know, business partners, all of, you know, are, are, don't share your faith with you. And all of a sudden you find yourself in a new community, this Christian community, that Christian community is oftentimes small, it is outcast, uh, and so forth. There's always the temptation to return to the world. You know, you're walking down the street and you're seeing John and Frank and Joe and all your buddies from the old days, you'd go to the, the brothel together and, uh, and they're heading to the brothel and they're, and, uh, you know, or the pagan, the pagan uh, temples where all this uh, harlotry would take place. And there was real temptations going on. Not only that, uh, they had uh, the Judaizers and others that were causing divisions and dissensions within the flock. And those that were 
say, converts, but maybe not carrying on the apostolic Orthodox faith. And it's there that, that Paul has to continually return on these three journeys to kind of try to shore up the community. Um, and where he sees weak parts or difficulties, he goes and deals with it. And a lot of times the, those problems are caused by particular people within their communities. And let's not think about this just like, oh, this is Bible talk. These are real Christian communities, very similar to ours. And, uh, and we know that even within our communities today, sadly, there are some that cause division and will try to isolate groups within the church, within our church communities, cause divisions. And some were even questioning the authority of Paul. And you see some of that going on today. And so this, we have this beautiful teaching here now from Acts of the Apostles in which we learn a lot about that unity of the church that Jesus prayed for, the care which the apostles had for that unity. Look at what, look at what St. Paul says. Watch therefore and remember that for three years, day and night, I did not cease to warn, even with tears, every one of you, the care that the apostles had, that they were fulfilling this unity which Jesus had prayed for. And, uh, and cautioning the church, uh, the, the community gathered together uh, against those that would cause problems. And so we have, we have this, um, this, uh, this phrase so, so famous. He says, and when they had come to him, he said to them, be careful about yourselves and the whole flock over which the Holy Spirit has placed you as bishops. So I want to stop for a second there and just talk about that for a moment, Father, and ask you to comment for us a little bit. First of all, some of our Bibles may have the translation overseers. We've talked about this before, but I think it, it's helpful to go back and just a quick reminder of the word we're looking at here, that in some of our Bibles are being translated as bishops, but some are being translated as overseers. Mm -hmm. And in fact, also, you have all sorts of different translations. The one I have in front of the RSV puts guardians here. Right, yeah. uh, but shepherds also because of the context, right? There's the shepherding language. There's the sheep, the wolves, and things like that. So the word here in Greek, episkipos, or the episkopi, the plural. That sure, I think for most people, they can hear that the episkopi, the, the episcopate. I've heard that kind of language, and that, that's because the word episcopate or episkipos. This is going back to the Greek, and it's from the. It is the word from which we get the word bishop. The word bishop is just simply an English transliteration through the German, Old German, through the Latin, through the Greek, back to this original word, uh, which, which if you lop off the front and, and the back and you get some constant interchanges, you end up with bishop, the word from this. But the, the word, so the word bishop, and it's a, being a transliteration in a certain sense of this original Greek word here, episkopos, Epi, on top of, and skopos, sight or vision, a literal kind of, you know, piece by piece translation would be overseer. That's a perfectly fine translation. However, it causes a little bit of a problem because someone hearing overseer is not hearing the word bishop. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're, even though these are actually the exact same words. And so this is why it's difficult in translation, but be very careful as we're translating these words it, to make sure that these texts continue to be understood today as they have been in the history of the church all the way back to the time when they were originally written. And so when we start switching words out uh, for a new word, we have to be very cautious about that. Someone might say the word bishop doesn't mean anything 
uh, in English. So let's switch it out to English language, overseer. That's a nice argument. Problem is, the word bishop does mean something to people. It means the one who governs the church. And so it does have meaning, it does have content that is identical to the way it was understood by the apostles. So, you know, in that context, then we can, we can begin to see, I think, I hope we begin to see that the church which we have today is, is not something like a medieval invention, which is, I think, what a lot of people begin to think, <laughs> especially when we're under attack by those who do not share our apostolic faith. Um, but here it is, the structure of the church is given to us, and the role of bishops in the church is, is given to us very clearly, to herd the church of God, which is, in these terms, his flock, right? His sheep, which he has deemed to his own, uh, redeemed to his own blood. There's another thing, by the way, here that is important as we're preparing ourselves for the Feast of Pentecost, that he says, be careful about yourselves and the whole flock over which the Holy Spirit has placed you as bishops, so there's a, a real understanding in the early church that the appointment of a bishop over the church is not something that is merely of human origin or human making, but that but this is the gift of God. We have a very similar phrase, by the way, in Acts chapter 15. I was just reading it about, uh, about the letter that they sent. It, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us regarding the Judaizer heresy they were writing, you know, to clarify the problem. So there's a real understanding of the unity of God's people with the Lord, sharers in the Holy Spirit, so that what they proclaim is the work of God. And then the role of the bishop to herd the church of God. Of course, herding means that they're going, right? The church has got to be going somewhere. That's, there's, there's a little insight there I think is helpful. If we're just, if we're just grazing, Okay, uh, then we're not actually functioning. Okay, the church is going somewhere, being herded to a place which he has deemed to his own blood. For I know this that 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 I and this is important for us to understand and remember in a modern application today because there's so many things going on. CNN's got the church strewn across the television screen every night, tearing it apart. And we see those who have been placed over God's people torn down, number one, but also themselves oftentimes infected uh, by the spirit of this world. And I think this, 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 uh, these words of St. Paul is a big reminder to us that we are to be just absolutely diligent in guarding the churches to be, this unity is to be guarded. And, uh, but that there are going to be fierce wolves will get in. So many people see the church and they say, look, uh, this whole thing is all a bunch of nonsense. No, this was, we know from Jesus' own words that, that weeds would grow up among the wheat, that fierce wolves will get in among you and they will not spare the flock. That means there are going to be evil men getting in and, and, and what do wolves do to sheep? They kill them. They destroy their faith. There will be men that get inside the church and begin to destroy the very people of God by tearing them apart, okay, by causing them to die. And from among you, some men will arise speaking perverse doctrines to draw away the disciples after them. I, I point this out to you because this, this idea of perverse doctrines there are 
teachings which are apostolic Christian teachings come to us from the sacred scriptures, from the fathers of the church, from the saints of the church, from those that have been placed as shepherds over the church. And when men speak against those teachings, St. Paul calls them perverse teachings and identifies those people that do that as wolves, which are seeking to destroy. And of course, an encouragement to our bishops that their role is to ensure that the wolf doesn't get in. They're the shepherd overseeing, right? Isn't that, and that, that kind of pastoral view of it? They're, they're watching out. They're making sure that there's no, no wolves lurking about in the shadows, in the bushes, and so forth, trying to snatch one of, one of God's people away. Um, and uh, this, again, as I said before, is the model the church gives us now to re- remind us where we are falling short as a church to reflect upon the, the life of the early churches we read about in Acts of the Apostles and then have the courage to conform our lives, to grow in such a way to become, uh, to be restored in the image and likeness of God, which he gave us on the day of our baptism, which he gave us on the day of our ordination, whether it be to the presbyterate or to the episcopate, that we might be, as St. Paul says, carefully watching and shedding tears for those whom God has placed under our care. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.